Welcome to the Sleep Charming Podcast, the podcast where I help you drift off for a good night's sleep or simply take a moment to relax. So sit back, take a deep breath, and let me read you an old story. Mr. Jones of the Manor Farm had already locked the hen houses for the night, but he was too drunk to remember to shut the pop holes. With the ring of light from his lantern dancing from side to side, he lurched across the yard, kicked off his boots at the back door, drew himself a last glass of beer from the barrel in the scullery, and made his way up to bed where Mrs. Jones was already snoring. As soon as the light in the bedroom went out, there was a stirring and fluttering all through the farm buildings. Word had gone around during the day that old Major, the prized middle white boar, had had a strange dream on the previous night and wished to communicate it to the other animals. It had been agreed that they should all meet in the big barn as soon as Mr. Jones was safely out of the way. Old Major, so he was called, though the name under which he had been exhibited was Willingdon Beauty, was so highly regarded on the farm that everyone was quite ready to lose an hour's sleep in order to hear what he had to say. At one end of the big barn, on a sort of raised platform, Major was already ensconced in his bed of straw, under a lantern which hung from a beam. He was twelve years old and had lately grown rather stout, but he was still a majestic-looking pig, with a wise and benevolent appearance, in spite of the fact that his tushes had never been cut. Before long, the other animals began to arrive and make themselves comfortable under their different fashions. First came the three dogs, Bluebell, Jessie and Pincher, and then the pigs, who settled down in the straw immediately in front of them. The hens perched themselves on the window sills. The pigeons fluttered up to the rafters. The sheep and cows lay down behind the pigs and began to chew at the cud. The two cart horses, Boxer and Clover, came in together, walking very slowly and setting down their vast hairy hoofs with great care, lest there should be some small animal concealed in the straw. Clover was a stout motherly mare approaching middle life who had quite never got her figure back after her fourth foul. Boxer was an enormous beast, nearly 18 hands high and as strong as any two ordinary horses put together. A white stripe down his nose gave him somewhat a stupid appearance, and in fact he was not of first-rate intelligence. But he was universally respected for his steadiness of character and tremendous power of work. After the horses came Muriel, the white goat, and Benjamin, the donkey. Benjamin was the oldest animal on the farm and the worst tempered. He seldom talked, and when he did, it was usually to make some cynical remark. For instance, he would say that God had given him his tail to keep the flies off, but that he would sooner have had no tail and no flies. Alone among the animals on the farm, he never laughed. If asked why, he would say that he saw nothing to laugh at. Nevertheless, without openly admitting it, he was devoted to Boxer. The two of them usually spent their Sundays together in the small paddock beyond the orchard gazing side by side and never speaking. The two horses had just lain down when a brood of ducklings who had lost their mother fled into the barn. Cheeping feebly and wandering from side to side to find a place where they would not be trodden on, Clover made a sort of wall around them with her great long foreleg, and the ducklings nestled down inside it and promptly fell asleep. At the last moment, Molly, the foolish, pretty white mare, who drew Mr. Jones's trap, came mincing daintily in, chewing a lump of sugar. She took a place near the front and began flirting her white mane, hoping to draw attention to the red ribbons it was plaited with. Last of all came the cat, 
who looked round as usual for the warmest place, and finally squeezed herself in between Boxer and Clover. There she purred contently through Major's speech without listening to a word of what he was saying. All the animals were now present except Moses, the tame raven, who slept on a perch behind the back door. When Major saw that they had all made themselves comfortable and were waiting attentively, he cleared his throat and began. Comrades, you've already heard about the strange dream that I had last night, but I will come to the dream later. I have something else to say first. I do not think, comrades, that, that I will be with you for many months longer, and before I die, I feel it is my duty to pass on to you such wisdom as I have acquired. I have had a long life. I've had much time for thought as I lay alone in my stall, and I think I may say that I understand the nature of life on this earth as well as any animal now living. It's about this that I wish to speak to you. Now, comrades, what is the nature of this life of ours? Let's face it, our lives are miserable, laborious, and short. We are born, we are given just so much food that will keep the breath in our bodies, and those of us who are capable of it are forced to work till the last atom of our strength. And the very instance that our usefulness has come to an end, we are slaughtered with hideous cruelty. No animal in England knows the meaning of happiness or leisure after he is a year old. No animal in England is free. The life of an animal is misery and slavery. That is the plain truth. But is this simply part of the order of nature? Is it because this land of ours is so poor that it cannot afford a decent life for those who dwell upon it? No, comrades. A thousand times no. The soil of England is fertile. Its climate is good. It is capable of affording food in abundance to an enormously greater number of animals than now inhabit it. This single farm of ours would support dozens of horses, twenty cows, hundreds of sheep, and all of them living in comfort and a dignity that are now beyond our imagining. Why then do we continue in this miserable condition? Because nearly the whole of the produce of our labour is stolen from us by human beings. There, comrades, the answer to all of our problems. It is summed up in a single word. Man. Man is the only real enemy we have. Remove man from the scene, and the root cause of hunger and overwork is abolished forever. Man is the only creature that consumes without producing. He does not give milk, he does not lay eggs, he is too weak to pull the plough, he cannot run fast enough to catch rabbits, yet he is the lord of all animals. He sets them to work, he gives back to them the bare minimum that will prevent them from starving, and the rest he keeps for himself. Our labour tills the soil, our dung fertilises it, and yet there is no one of us that owns more than his bare skin. You cows that I see before me, how many thousands of gallons of milk have you given during the last year? And what has happened to that milk which should have been breeding up sturdy calves? Every drop of it has gone down the throats of our enemies. And you hens, how many eggs have you laid in the last year? How many of those eggs were hatched into chickens? The rest have all gone to the market to bring in money for Jones and his men. And you, Clover, where are those four fowls you bore, who should have been the support and pleasure of your old age? Each was sold at a year old, you will never see one of them again. In return for your confinements and all of your labour in the fields, what have you ever had except your bare rations in a stall? And even the miserable lives we lead are not allowed to reach their natural span. For myself, I do not grumble, for I am one of the lucky ones. I am twelve years old and have had over four hundred children. Such is the natural life of a pig but no animal escapes the cruel knife in the end. You young porkers who are sitting in front of me, every one of you will scream your lives out at the block within a year. To that horror we all must come. Cows, pigs, hens, sheep, everyone. Even the horses and dogs have no better fate. You, Boxer, 
The very day that those great muscles of yours lose their power, Jones will sell you to the knacker. He will cut your throat and boil you down for foxhounds. As for the dogs, when they grow old and toothless, Jones ties a brick around their necks and drowns them in the nearest pond. Is it not crystal clear then, comrades, that all the evils in our life spring from the tyranny of human beings? Only get rid of man and the produce of our labour will be our own. Almost overnight we could become rich and free. What then must we do? Why work day and night, body and soul, for the overthrow of the human race? That is my message to you, comrades. Rebellion. I do not know when that rebellion will come. It might be in a week or in a hundred years, but I know, as surely as I see the straw beneath my feet, that sooner or later justice will be done. Fix your eyes on that, comrades, throughout the short remainder of your lives. All above, pass on this message of mine to those who come after you, so that the future generation shall carry on the struggle until it's victorious. And remember, comrades, your resolution must never falter. No argument must lead you astray. Never listen when they tell you that man and the animals have a common interest. That the prosperity of the one is the prosperity of the others. It is all lies. Man serves the interests of no creature except itself. And among us animals, let there be perfect unity. Perfect comradeship in the struggle. All men are enemies. All animals are comrades. At this moment, there was a tremendous uproar. While Major was speaking, four large rats had crept out of their holes and were sitting on their hindquarters, listening to him. The dogs had suddenly caught sight of them, and it was only by a swift dash for their holes that the rats saved their lives. Major raised his trotter for silence. Comrades, he said, here is a point that must be settled. The wild creatures, such as the rats and rabbits, are they our friends or our enemies? Let us put it to the vote. I propose this question to the meeting. Are rats comrades? The vote was taken at once, and it was agreed by an overwhelming majority that the rats were comrades. There were only four dissentients, the three dogs and the cat, who was afterwards discovered to have voted on both sides. Major continued. I have little more to say. I merely repeat, remember always your duty of enmity towards man and all his ways. Whatever goes upon two legs is an enemy. Whatever goes upon four legs or has wings is a friend. And remember also that in fighting against man, we must not come to resemble him. Even when you have conquered him, do not adopt his vices. No animal must ever live in a house or sleep in a bed or wear clothes or drink alcohol or smoke tobacco or touch money or engage in trade. All the habits of man are evil. And above all, no animal must tyrannize over his own. Weak or strong, clever or simple, we are all brothers. No animal must ever kill another animal. All animals are equal. And now, comrades, I tell you about my dream of last night. I cannot describe that dream to you. It was a dream of the earth as it will be when man is vanished. But it reminded me of something that I had long forgotten, many years ago when I was a little pig. My mother and the other souls used to sing an old song, of which they knew only the tune in the first three words. I had known that tune in my infancy, but it had long since passed out of my mind. Last night, however, it came back to me in a dream. And what is more, the words of the song also came backwards. I'm certain which was sung by the animals of long ago, and have been lost to the memory for generations. I will sing you that song now, comrades. I am old, and my voice is hoarse. But when I have taught you the tune, you can sing it better for yourselves. It is called Beasts of England. Old Major cleared his throat and began to sing. As he had said, his voice was hoarse, but he sang well enough, and it was a stirring tune, something between Clementine and La Couturache. 
the singing of this song threw the animals into the wildest excitement. Almost before Major had reached the end, they began singing it for themselves. Even the stupidest of them had already picked up the tune, and a few of the words. And as for the clever ones, such as the pigs and dogs, they had the entire song by heart within a few minutes. And then, after a few preliminary tries, the whole farm burst out into Beasts of England in a tremendous unison. The cows loud it, the dogs whined it, and the sheeps bleated it. The horses whined it, and the ducks quacked it. They were so delighted by the song that they sang it right through five times in succession. I might have continued singing it all night if they had not been interrupted. Unfortunately, the uproar awoke Mr. Jones, who sprang out of bed, making sure that there was a fox in the yard. He seized the gun which always stood in the corner of his bedroom and let fly a charge of number six shots into the darkness. The pellets buried themselves into the wall of the barn, and the meeting broke hurriedly. Everyone fled to his own sleeping place. The birds jumped into their perches, the animals settled down in the straw, and the whole farm was asleep in a moment. Three nights later, Old Major died peacefully in his sleep. His body was buried at the foot of the orchard. This was in early March. During the next three months, there was much secret activity. Major's speech had given the more intelligent animals on the farm a completely new outlook on life. They did not know when the rebellion predicted by Major would take place. They had no reason for thinking it would be within their own lifetime, but they saw clearly that it was their duty to prepare for it. The work of teaching and organising the others fell naturally upon the pigs, who were generally recognised as being the cleverest of the animals. Preeminent among the pigs were two young boars named Snowball and Napoleon, whom Mr Jones was breeding up for sale. Napoleon was a large, rather fierce-looking Berkshire boar, the only Berkshire boar on the farm, not much of a talker, but with a reputation for getting his own way. Snowball was more of a vivacious pig than Napoleon. Quicker in speech and more inventive, but was not considered to have the same depth of character. All the other pigs on the farm were porkers. The best among them was a small fat pig named Squealer, with very round cheeks and twinkling eyes, nimble movements and a shrill voice. He was a brilliant talker. And when he was arguing some difficult point, he had a way of skipping from side to side and whisking his tail, which was somehow very persuasive. The others said of Squealer that he could turn black into white. These three had elaborated Old Major's teachings into a complete system of thought, to which they gave the name of animalism. Several nights a week after Mr. Jones was asleep, they held a secret meeting in the barn and expounded the principles of animalism to the others. At the beginning, they were met with much stupidity and apathy. Some of the animals talked of the duty of loyalty to Mr. Jones, whom they referred to as Master, or made elementary remarks such as, Mr. Jones feeds us. If he were gone, we would starve to death. Others ask such questions as, why should we care what happens after we're dead? Or if this rebellion is to happen, what difference does it make, whether we work for it or not? The pigs had great difficulty making them see that this was contrary to the spirit of animalism. The stupidest questions of all were asked by Molly, the white mare. The very first question she asked Snowball was, Will there still be sugar after the rebellion? No, said Snowball firmly. We have no means of making sugar on this farm. Besides, you do not need sugar. You will have all the oats and hay you want. And shall I still be allowed to wear ribbons in my mane? asked Molly. Comrade, said Snowball, those ribbons that you are so devoted to are the badge of slavery. Can you not understand that liberty is worth more than ribbons? Molly agreed, but she did not sound very convinced. The pigs had an even harder struggle to counteract the lies put about Moses the Tame Raven. Moses, who was Mr. Jones's special pet, a spy and tale-bearer, but he was also a clever talker. 
He claimed to know the existence of a mysterious country called Sugar Candy Mountain, to which all the animals went when they died. It was situated somewhere up in the sky, a little distance beyond the clouds, Moses said. In Sugar Candy Mountain, it was Sunday seven days a week. Clover was in season all year round, and lump sugar and linseed cake grew on the hedges. The animals hated Moses because he told tales and did not work. But some of them believed in Sugar Candy Mountain, and the pigs had to argue very hard to persuade them that there was no such place. Their most faithful disciples were the two cart horses, Boxer and Clover. These two had great difficulty in thinking anything out for themselves. But having once accepted the pigs as their teachers, they absorbed everything that they were told, and passed it on to the other animals by simple arguments. They were unfailing in their attendance at the secret meetings in the barn, and led the singing of Beasts of England, with which the meeting always ended. Now, as it turned out, the rebellion was achieved much earlier and more easily than anyone had expected. In the past years, Mr Jones, although a hard master, had been a capable farmer, but as of late he had fallen on evil days. He had become much disheartened after losing money in a lawsuit, and had taken to drinking more than was good for him. For whole days at a time, he would lounge in his Windsor chair in the kitchen, reading the newspaper, drinking, and occasionally feeding Moses on crusts of bread soaked in beer. His men were idle and dishonest, the fields were full of weeds, the buildings wanted roofing, the hedges were neglected, and the animals were underfed. June came and the hay was almost ready for cutting. On Midsummer's Eve, which was a Saturday, Mr Jones went into Willingdon and got so drunk at the Red Lion that he did not come back till midday on Sunday. The men had milked the cows in the early morning and then had gone out rabbiting without bothering to feed the animals. When Mr Jones got back, he immediately went to sleep on the drawing room sofa with the news of the world over his face, so that when the evening came, the animals were still unfed. At last they could stand it no longer. One of the cows broke into the door of the store shed with her horn and all of the animals began to help themselves from the bins. It was then that Mr Jones woke up. The next moment he and his four men were in the store shed with whips in their hands, lashing out in all directions. This was more than the hungry animals could bear. With one accord, though nothing of the kind had been planned beforehand, they flung themselves upon their tormentors. Jones and his men suddenly found themselves being butted and kicked from all sides. The situation was quite out of their control. They had never seen animals behave like this before, and the sudden uprising of creatures whom they were used to thrashing and maltreating just as they chose frightened them almost out of their wits. After only a moment or two, they gave up trying to defend themselves and took to their heels. A minute later, all five of them were in full flight down the cart track that led to the main road, with the animals pursuing them in triumph. Mrs Jones looked out of the bedroom window, saw what was happening, hurriedly flung a few possessions into a carpet bag, and slipped out of the farm by another way. Moses sprang off his perch and flapped at her, croaking loudly. Meanwhile, the animals had chased Jones and his men out onto the road and slammed the five-barred gate behind them. And so, almost before they knew what was happening, the rebellion had successfully carried through. Jones was expelled, and the manor farm was theirs. For the first few minutes, the animals could hardly believe in their good fortune. The first act was to gallop into a body right round the boundaries of the farm, as though they made quite sure that no human being was hiding anywhere upon it, and they raced back to the farm buildings to wipe out the last traces of Jones's hated reign. The harness room at the end of the stables was broken open, the bits, the nose rings, the dog chains, the cruel knives with which Mr Jones had been used to castrate the pigs and lambs, were all flung down the well. The reins, the halters, the blinkers, the degrading nose bags, were thrown into the rubbish fire which was burning in the yard. So were the whips. All the animals capered with joy when they saw the whips going into the flames. Snowball also threw into the fire the ribbons with which the horses' manes and tails had usually been decorated on market days. Ribbons, he said, should be considered as clothes. 
which are a mark of a human being. All animals should go naked. When Boxer heard this, he fetched the small straw hat which he wore in the summer to keep the flies out of his ears, and flung it into the fire with the rest. In a very little while, the animals had destroyed everything that reminded them of Mr. Jones. Napoleon led them back to the store shed, and served out a double ration of corn to everybody, with two biscuits for each dog. Then they sang Beasts of England from end to end seven times running, and after that they settled down for the night and slept as they had never slept before. But they woke up at dawn as usual, and suddenly remembering the glorious thing that happened, they all raced out into the pasture together. A little way down the pasture there was a knoll that commanded a view of most of the farm. The animals rushed to the top of it and gazed round them in the clear morning light. Yes, it was theirs. Everything that they could see was theirs. In the ecstasy of that thought, they gambled round and round, and they hurled themselves into the air in great leaps of excitement. They rolled in the dew, they cropped mouthfuls of sweet summer grass, they kicked up the clods of the black earth, and snuffed its rich scent. Then they made a tour of inspection of the whole farm, and surveyed with speechless admiration the ploughland, the hayfield, the orchard, the pool, the spinney. It was as though they had never seen these things before, and even now they could hardly believe that it was all their own. Then they filed back to the farm buildings and halted in silence outside the door of the farmhouse. That was theirs too, but they were frightened to go inside. After a moment, however, Snowball and Napoleon butted the door open with their shoulders and the animals entered in single file. Walking with the utmost care for fear of disturbing anything, they tiptoed from room to room, afraid to speak above a whisper, and gazing with a kind of awe at the unbelievable luxury. At the beds with their feather mattresses, the looking-glasses, the horsehair sofa, the Brussels carpet, the lithograph of Queen Victoria over the drawing-room mantelpiece. They were just coming down the stairs when Molly was discovered to be missing. Going back, the others found that she had remained behind in the best room. She had taken a piece of blue ribbon from Mrs. Jones's dressing table and was holding it against her shoulder and admiring herself in the glass in a very foolish manner. The others reproached her sharply and they went outside. Some hams hanging in the kitchen were taken out for burial, and the barrel of beer in the scullery was stove in with a kick from Boxer's hoof. Otherwise, nothing in the house was touched. A unanimous resolution was passed on the spot that the farmhouse should be preserved as a museum. All were agreed that no animal must ever live there. The animals had their breakfast, and then Snowball and Napoleon called them together again. Comrades, said Snowball, it is half past six, and we have a long day before us. Today we begin the hay harvest, but there is another matter that must be attended to first. The pigs now revealed that during the past three months they had taught themselves to read and write from an old spelling book which had belonged to Mr. Jones's children, and which had been thrown onto the rubbish heap. Napoleon sent for pots of black and white paint, and led the way down to the five-barred gate that gave on to the main road. Then Snowball, for it was Snowball who was best at writing, took a brush between the two knuckles of his trotter, painted out Manor Farm from the top bar of the gate, and in its place painted Animal Farm. This was to be the name of the farm from now on. After this, they went back to the farm buildings, where Snowball and Napoleon sent for a ladder, which they caused to be set against the end of the wall of the big barn. They explained that by their studies of the past three months, the pigs had succeeded in reducing the principles of animalism to seven commandments. These seven commandments will now be inscribed on the wall. They would form an unalterable law by which all the animals on Animal Farm must live forever after. With some difficulty, for it is not easy for a pig to balance himself on a ladder, Snowball climbed up and set to work, with Squealer a few rungs below him holding the paint pot. 
The commandments were written on the tiled wall in great white letters that could be read thirty yards away. They ran thus. The Seven Commandments. 1. Whatever goes upon two legs is an enemy. 2. Whatever goes upon four legs or has wings is a friend. 3. No animal shall wear clothes. 4. No animal shall sleep in a bed. 5. No animal shall drink alcohol. 6. No animal shall kill any other animal. 7. All animals are equal. It was very neatly written, except that friend was written friend, and one of the S's was the wrong way around. The spelling was corrected all the way through, though. Snowball read it aloud for the benefit of the others. All the animals nodded in complete agreement, and the cleverer ones at once began to learn the commandments by heart. Now, comrades, cried Snowball, throwing down the paintbrush. To the hayfield! Let us make it a point of honour to get into the harvest more quickly than Jones and his men could do. But at this moment, the three cows who had seemed uneasy for some time past set up a loud lowing. They had not been milked for twenty-four hours, and their udders were almost bursting. After a little thought, the pigs sent for buckets and milked the cows fairly successfully, their trotters being well adapted to this task. Soon there were five buckets of frothing creamy milk, at which many of the animals looked with considerable interest. What is going to happen to all of that milk? said someone. Jones used sometimes to mix it in our mash, said one of the hens. Never mind the milk, comrades, cried Napoleon, placing himself in front of the buckets. That will be attended to. The harvest is more important. Comrade Snowball will lead the way. I shall follow in a few minutes. Forward, comrades, the hay is waiting. So the animals trooped down to the hayfield to begin the harvest, and when they came back in the evening, it was noticed that the milk had disappeared.